Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today, our guest is Dr. Joshua Grubbs. He is a clinical psychologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Bowling Green State University, where he researches the psychology of human sexuality, the psychology of addiction, and the psychology of religion and morality. Thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this. Okay, great. Will you tell me uh, quickly why you're glad to be a part of this? That makes me curious. Well, you know, I'm, I've seen a lot of great discussions that have been born out of what has been some pretty terrible events over the past few days and weeks. And, and I know, you know, anytime I get a media request, I always jump on real quick and see who's doing the asking. And so, you know, looking at the kind of work you do in the intersection that you speak to of, of what it looks like faith and feminism and, and just trying to understand a few different, uh, more controversial topics in, in faith communities. I'm always excited to speak to that. Um, you know, I came from a very conservative religious background myself. And so seeing people that are trying to bridge the gap between being an ethical human and being a person of faith, I always like seeing it. Yeah, it, it's a shame that that's kind of a tough gap to close yeah. nowadays. Oi, oi. Um, and I really don't mean to offend anyone by saying that. I do have some major rubs with the conservative church at the moment, right. um, but I don't have any hatred or animosity for the people within it. We are just begging, begging, begging the voices that can speak to things to just wake up because like to your point and to your existence, there are real studies that show us how mm -hmm. we actually can conquer this beast of male repression, where this violence is stemming from. Mm -hmm. So to be more specific, if you're watching this conversation later, we are going to be addressing the Atlanta shooting that just occurred. I had a beautiful conversation with Tara Tang, who really sits at this intersection of being a woman with a Baptist pastor as a father. Um, she's also Asian American. She's worked with sex workers to um, 
help them out of trafficking, et cetera. So that was that perspective. But obviously, not only the male perspective is valid and, and valuable, but also the clinical perspective. And the reason I primarily wanted to bring you on is because for a long time, I've seen this notion building, both when I was in church and afterwards, of sex addiction. Mm -hmm. So we've really been programmed in a lot of different faith practices within Christianity to believe that men, as Tara Tang put it, are in control of everything. The church, the finances, leading the household, but the only thing they cannot control is their sexuality. Right. So after we're being taught that again and again and again, then of course, when someone is watching pornography or masturbating, which I will try so hard to debunk the myth that men cannot masturbate because holy moly, I want to hear from you what right. that does to a person's psychology. Um, so yeah, we're going to tackle this from a bunch of different angles to really inform ourselves of what's going on. So have you noticed an uptick in the language of he is suffering sexual addiction or this person had a sexual addiction in the faith space? Certainly. And so just to give some context, so I am the son of a Baptist minister. Um, oh, and so okay. <laughs> I was born and raised in evangelical culture in the South. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. We were homeschooled. Um, I went to Liberty University for my undergrad. So like Ooh. the conservative evangelical church, <laughs> I have the bona fides to, to, to speak to there. That's actually why I do what I do. Um, so I, I recall being in college, I was born in 88 and I was started college around 2006. And I recall early in college, I can't remember if it was my freshman or sophomore year being at some sort of seminar that was targeted towards men that said that, you know, their data suggested that 50% of men in the church, especially 50% of young men were addicted to pornography. And that was the word that they used, addicted. And I remember, I, mean, I, was, I was probably 18 at the time. And thinking, that, that doesn't sound like it makes sense, because if 50% of Christian men in the U.S. had an addiction, that would mean basically 20-ish percent of the U.S. population, that's about what we're looking at, if you're looking at just Christian men, um, uh, half of them are addicted. And if they had an addiction, I would think society, if 20% of all the U.S. population had this raging addiction, that society might look different, because tends to you know mess up a lot of things and I just remember thinking that seems like way too high of a number but I mean this was uh, it was constant you know in my experiences at Liberty University as a being a young adult man in the church like this was a constant struggle like everything about men's spirituality boiled down to well, what are you doing to resist sexual temptation you know when was the last time you viewed porn when was the last time you masturbated you need an accountability partner that's going to ask you the tough questions and really confront your addiction yeah um and so yeah that was that was my background it was there i got interested in studying it and, you know it's been gosh it's i guess 15 years now that i've been doing this and um yeah we have the data that supports those experiences that that shows that yes Christian men in particular in the U.S. are especially worried about this notion of sex addiction. Yeah, I see it being so relevant because in Christianity, in conservative Christianity, there's this whole narrative that sex isn't more egregious of a sin than anything else. But paired with this narrative of 
you will fundamentally lose people pieces of yourself you might lose your destiny as mike todd would say right. you might lose your inherent value or worth you will lose your dignity and strength as lisa bevere says so i just see that breeding nothing but anxiety and fear around mm -hmm. people what do you find is the effect when we are educating or rather miseducating people with this notion that touching themselves or being sexual in any way, having quote, impure thoughts, lustful thoughts is going to ruin them or diminish their chance at a happily ever after or a good marriage. Well, I mean, inherently, anytime you tell someone that their natural urges that they struggle to resist if they give in to them, this means that they've kind of ruined their future. You create issues of anxiety, you create issues of stress and, and kind of just perpetual concern. You also create a very fixed, a high level of fixation on this. And so, um, you know, again, I think there's this notion in a lot of evangelical circles that men are judging their entire spiritual life, the quality of it based on the last time that they viewed pornography. And so mm -hmm. instead of finding meaning or purpose or connection with others in their faith, they're finding it as this continual source of anxiety because it's making them feel incredibly guilty about what might be normal and natural urges. And it's not to say like you should feel great about viewing porn. If you, if you genuinely think porn is a problem, like, okay, that that's okay. But viewing it as an addiction, viewing it as a deep moral failing rather than just one of the many things that if you're a person of faith, you're trying to improve in your life, placing this kind of special sacred emphasis on getting this right, it just, it, it ruins a lot of things in your life. It just, it leaves you kind of obsessed with something that is probably best case scenario should only be a smaller part of your total being. Yeah. And I see the effect that it has on women as well, because mm -hmm. if we are told that this is a gigantic failing in a man's life, that he should be able to resist this temptation to touch himself and to be sexual and to only think of you in a sexual light, then when a woman who is in the Christ Christian atmosphere finds a thread of pornography on someone's computer or catches them in the act of masturbation, they feel that it, it is a failing of themselves. And I just did a response to that fat shaming pastor, Stuart Allen Clark, who is also in the Baptist church. Of course. <laughs> and his whole thing was like, well, if you don't look hot, if you don't stay skinny, if you don't look 20 forever, who knows what I'll do? Um, again, placing that blame back on the female. So what do you see in your research and your study about the dynamic that this sort of sexual anxiety creates in the family dynamic? Because we're so often told porn is the villain. Porn is the right. thing that we have to eradicate. Whereas my understanding and my belief is that no, purity culture is mm -hmm. the villain. Purity culture is the thing we have to eradicate. So please tell me if you agree with that sentiment of mine, right. and then also tell me what you see in, in the relational value of people when they are in this headspace. Right. And so, well, I mean, you're, you're hitting on a few different kind of key things here. Like one, there is this very much the strong notion in evangelical culture that, you know, sex within heterosexual marriage is the only acceptable form of sexual expression, period, at all. And that you should always be the full the full satisfaction of your partner should be your top priority so anything that your partner desires sexually falls on you 
to meet. Now, in theory, you know, you'll talk about these pastors and they'll equivocate on it and talk about how, I believe it's in First Corinthians, Paul talks about not defrauding your spouse and not, you know, all of these things about how it should go both ways. But in practice, what they mean is, yes, you wife, it is your job to contain the entirety of your husband's sexual drive. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to satisfy your spouse sexually. I mean, that's actually a sign of, or your partner sexually, that's a sign of a healthy relationship that you guys want to do that. But the notion that, that they are the entire sum of your focus sexually, that, that you must, you must satisfy every whim and urge. And if they ever have an, an urge that's unsatisfied, that's your fault. Or if they ever do anything, you know, if they touch themselves, that means you're failing. Or if they've looked at porn, that means you failed. It's inherently damaging. It's also flatly untrue. Like there's just no evidence that, oh, if your husband occasionally masturbates, that means that he's not satisfied with you. That's, that's just not true. There's compelling evidence that humans desire a whole variety of sexual experiences and practices. And even if you have a very vibrant sex life and you're having sex twice a day, every day, which I don't know any couples that do that, but in theory, <laughs> even, if you, right, <laughs> even if you, you were like, there are still men out there or women out there that would still find that they're occasionally masturbating and doing things because it's, it's, there is not a number of times per week or per day that's going to guarantee full sexual satisfaction. We all have drives and urges that come and go, with different factors. So that's part of it. I mean, the other part you're getting at is this purity culture notion. And, and I agree, purity culture as a whole has a lot of problems with it. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with people of faith saying we want to hold ourselves to a very specific standard in terms of, of you know, sexual behaviors. They're like being sexually ethical, I, I think is very compatible with faith. And if you're, I think that's of, compatible out of faith too. Oh, complete. Sexual, yes, completely yeah. true. Yeah. Um, and, and I even think that you can have a healthy view of sexuality that's, that prioritizes and centers monogamy within your own life, if that's the value set that you hold. And so there's aspects of what we call purity culture that I think can be part of the healthy, but it's kind of the collective whole of it that starts to get really problematic. And then the culture around it that starts to get really problematic because it does even the people that are out there saying, you know, there's forgiveness and there's hope and they're trying to put forth this kind of compassionate view of sexuality. They're inherently also saying, well, you've done something wrong and you should be ashamed. And, and so there's this, there's this just constant dynamic in purity culture of you should feel bad about the things that you're doing, but if you do better, there's hope, but you should feel still so bad until you're doing better. And so it leads to problems inherently. Yeah. So can you debunk some myths for us or clarify mm -hmm. certain things? Because I also, in my research, just put out a video on Monday, just showing clips that I believe should really um, basically display male purity culture and right. the anxieties and fears that are heaped upon men. And the mm -hmm. clips that I pulled span a decade or more. So, and this is prevalent. It's like probably happening on Sunday, this coming Sunday. And mm -hmm. it probably happened, you know, it was happening 10 years ago and more. Right. Um, so I see this common uh, pseudoscience, for example, talking about how if you get used to the sensation of masturbating, self-pleasure, onanism, then you will not be able to enjoy your wife 
because right. you will get used to this one sort of stimulation. And they tell it's, that to women too, but we're talking about men. Right. So there's, it's quite, that's always, I just, I chuckle for all sorts of reasons, but like, I, I mean, one <laughs> of the big reasons, don't cry. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's very much, it's like, I, I mean, I would honestly challenge you to find any man that has masturbated regularly and has had a regular heterosexual partner and ask them, okay, so you have a choice. Like you can go have sex with your partner or you can masturbate. Which one is it going to be? Almost, almost 100% of the time, the men are going to say a partner. Like, because this is, is, as humans, like masturbation can be something that people enjoy quite a bit. But as humans, we tend to like to have sexual experiences with partners. So this notion that like somehow or another that your partner is not going to satisfy you um, if you've masturbated too much, I mean, it, there's just no, there's literally no research to support that. There's none. I mean, there is actual research that suggests women that masturbate have more satisfying partner sexual experiences and that men that masturbate and communicate openly with their partners about their, you know, behaviors, um, or their masturbation also have more satisfying sexual experiences. Um, and, in all of these cases, masturbation is not really that related to sexual, you know, fulfillment with a partner so much as communication is. If you're communicating regularly with your partner, I mean, you should be teaching men about how to, to genuinely and open-mindedly discuss desires and preferences with their partner and be getting that back from their partner if you want to produce, you know, a healthy sex life, not telling them not to masturbate. You should be able to say, hey, I like it when you do X. That's going to go a lot further than, you know, I didn't touch myself for two weeks. Like, it just is. Um, so, I mean, flatly, this notion that masturbation ruins partnered sex, is it's, there's no research to support it. Um, and it's, when you actually look at the data, it's laughably false. Yeah, laughably, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so um, I'm also really curious about the information that I have heard about that I do believe to be true versus how it is presented in church and whether or not it is damaging. So I've heard a lot of church people talk about the neuroscience, like when you ejaculate, how you will release dopamine and all of these different like serotonin and these different chemicals that bring happiness and relaxation, which is ironic to me because they're like, and that's bad, that's horrible. And I'm like, okay, so I don't know why, but some of the justification is, and therefore it will become an addiction. And a right. lot of times the words enslavement will be used, mm -hmm. don't be a slave to your sexuality. So they're kind of pairing this true thing about this release of what happens in your body when you ejaculate to this false narrative of, therefore, you will become enslaved to that sensation. Right. So there, there's a lot going on there. There's a popular narrative, both within the church and actually without the church, among people that think that pornography in particular is addictive, that because when you masturbate to pornography, or when you masturbate in general, or when you have partnered sex, your brain releases certain chemicals, you are therefore experiencing an addiction. Now, here's the thing. Anything pleasurable releases those chemicals. So either we're addicted to everything or it's possible that the release of pleasure chemicals is not inherently addiction, addictive. Um, so, I mean, that's part of it is this, this notion that if something is releasing pleasurable or pleasure hormones or pleasure neurotransmitters in your brain, 
that you will inherently get addicted to it. And there's, there's just not much evidence to suggest that that's what generally occurs with pornography viewing or with masturbation or with sex. Um, and then that actually plays to the bigger question of whether or not sex addiction is a real addiction or not. I mean, we do know some people experience out of control sexual behaviors. And some people get so caught up in their sexual behaviors that it does ruin their lives. Like this is, this is not an exaggeration to say that some people stop viewing porn. They get caught viewing porn at work. They get fired. They're viewing porn multiple hours a day and losing relationships. So there, there are people that have true problems. And we have a new disorder actually in the international classification of diseases, which not that important which classification it is, but that's basically how mental health professionals diagnose disorders. We have this new disorder called compulsive sexual behavior disorder. It's not technically an addiction, but it does speak to this notion of people that are out of control. That's a very real experience. That does not mean that if you're masturbating to pornography or if you're masturbating in general, that you have an addiction. It, or if you're having sex in general, that you have an addiction, or if you find yourself with a high sex drive, that you have an addiction. People have very natural differences, both across people. Some people have higher sex drives than others, and then people have higher sex drives some days than they do other days. And so like sex drives ebbs and flows. And just because there's sometimes you feel like, man, I really am constantly horny or whatever you want to call it. Um, that doesn't mean you have an addiction. It means you're human. I mean, that's mm. just a human, a very human experience. Yeah. And it's not gendered either. No. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of girlfriends that will complain about how much hornier they are than their male counterparts. <laughs> right. And that's, that's actually something I've seen of, uh, in growing amount of research on, which I think is really cool. Historically, it was always assumed men had the higher sex drives and there's more and more research coming on. Uh, what is it like to be a woman in a relation in a heterosexual relationship in particular? where you have the higher sex drive. Um, and it's not as uncommon as, you know, a lot of people would have. Yeah, according to my research at Sunday brunches, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a common enough. issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you tell me the difference, please, between compulsion and addiction? Because what I think is so interesting is that the church will teach people kind of like men, you have this compulsion, you have this irresistible urge to just bang someone if you see their spaghetti strap. But then they'll also be like, oh, don't stumble into addiction. Don't do these behaviors to reiterate that that will create an addiction. So that's the narrative I see. Tell me what's false and true in these ideas and what is the difference between these two terms? Right. So this gets really messy really fast. So the, 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 argument about what's the difference between a compulsion and an addiction uh, in the mental health community and the psychiatric and psychological research communities. It's, it's a very technical distinction about the processes that maybe underlie what's going on. And so in an addiction, you tend to see more patterns of what we would call dependence, where there's a physiological dependence and symptoms of withdrawal, whereas in a compulsion, it's just an urge that you can't resist, even though there's not necessarily dependence or withdrawal. In practice, though, in the real world, there's not a huge difference to what the average lay person means when they say that. So if I say, I don't think you have an addiction, um, but you do have compulsive sexual behavior disorder, which means that you cannot resist your urges to, you know, masturbate to pornography, 
and it's creating all of these problems in your life. For all intents and purposes, that person's going to feel like they have an addiction. And that's not wrong. It's, that's just, it's a different level. The, this compulsion versus addiction kind of distinction is a very clinical, I mean, it's a very academic kind of research distinction um, that gets at what's driving it when the reality is both refer to people feeling out of control of their behaviors. And now I think both cases, you know, it, to me, it doesn't matter if you have dependence on the dopamine associated with, you know, orgasm, or if you're just compelled, you feel this compulsion to engage in seeking orgasms like that, you know, at the end of the day, you're probably just feeling overwhelmed with your sexual drive and we need to work on that. But like, you know, that distinction, I don't think, I don't think it bears as much significance as I often see, you know, I often see a lot of people out there saying, well, sex addiction isn't real. It's just a compulsion. And it's like, that distinction doesn't matter to the person who is out of control. And it doesn't matter to the person who thinks they're out of control. We just, we need to help them understand themselves better and choose behaviors that they feel good with rather than behaviors that they feel ashamed of. Totally. I can see how that distinction wouldn't be relevant to the person suffering Mm -hmm. their compulsions. On the other hand, it does feel important to me to make that distinction because of the excuse factor of just being right. like, well, this is, haven't you ever heard of heroin addiction? Have, like, I've mm-hmm. seen it compared to that. And it's like, well, this That's person fair. just can't help it. Right. That is like, a, I mean, is there a difference? Because with heroin, it's like, like you said, your body goes through withdrawals. Do people mm-hmm. experience withdrawal? Do people experience these different things? when they're compulsory and their sex sexual right. behavior. So <laughs> I've seen that before and I always want to respond in anger when I hear someone comparing porn to heroin. And and the reason I say that is is I have a background in addiction psychology. I've worked treating heroin addiction and you know I live currently in Ohio that has just been ravaged by the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. And so this comparison of someone feeling, you know, they can't avoid porn versus something that's killing, you know, dozens of thousands of Americans every year is very it's very hard for me to react calmly to. But having said that, there is I do understand that excuse factor. And what I w- I would say to that is um an addiction is never an excuse for a behavior, nor is a compulsion. You know, at the end of the day, we, we, those are what we would consider mental illnesses, you know, an addiction to a, a drug or having a compulsive sexual behavior disorder. They're both mental illnesses, sure, but if we still need people to be able to recover from it. And recovery inherently involves some level of personal choice. There's structural factors. There's all these things we want to do, but nothing is about mental illness as an excuse for behavior. And people that are trying to blame, you know, well, I can't stop my porn viewing because I have an addiction. That, let's, that just doesn't make sense because anyone with an addiction can say that. What, what we need to be talking about is, well, what do we need to do to support you from stopping this behavior that you want to have? Um, now, the flip side of all this is there's never a version of reality where sex addiction, porn addiction, any of those addictions are an excuse for things like violence. Um, I've never seen it as an excuse for mass murder until this past week. Uh, that was that was new to me. Um, I have seen it really s- terrible cases where um, like sexual exploitation, sexual abuse. I've seen it used to try to justify, you know, uh, revenge porn and things like that. Mm. And none of those, no, no, sex addiction, compulsive sexual behavior disorder, nothing. There is no mental illness 
or other diagnosis that I could give you that excuses those behaviors. Those are abusive, sadistic behaviors that regardless of the societal factors that may have led there, ultimately you chose to engage in and therefore you bear responsibility for. So you can use these other diagnoses you have all you want. It's not an excuse for victimizing someone else, period. Right. It's just so interesting talking to you because all the complications are flooding into my mind because Mm. even when we talk about compulsive sexual behavior, I think about an unevenly matched or mismatched sexual drive between two partners and then you're in church. So like, would you, like I've seen people in that situation and then in that case, what actually is compulsory behavior? Like to me, I would think, that's true definition would be if you are imposing your sexuality on others, like if mm-hmm. you're in an office space, if you're on Zoom having a conference and you're masturbating, mm-hmm. like those are things that are abusive to other people. They're sexually mm-hmm. abusive behaviors. So I'm inclined to be like, well, is compulsory, compulsory behavior and sexuality simply when your sexuality impedes upon your health and the health and and autonomy and respect of other people and then if you have this mismatched sexual drive i can so easily see a really sexually motivated man or woman in a heterosexual relationship feeling like they have a compulsory disorder just because they feel a desire and a drive to orgasm once a day and their partner only wants to have sex once a month or something right yeah and so mismatched sexual desire between partners can lead, you know, the partner with the higher sexual drive thinking, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I like this? And if you're in a culture within, you know, the church, for example, that's saying, well, your partner should meet all of your sexual needs. And they're just not because there's such a mismatch. It's very easy to start quickly feeling like there is something clinically diagnosably wrong with it. Um, the reality is, uh, if your partner's not wanting to have sex as often as you are and you have the urge to orgasm every day and that can be done in a way that doesn't abuse others that doesn't hurt others that doesn't interfere with your job or your overall life kind of you know routines that's not a disorder that's that's just being a high more of sexual kind of driven sexually driven person and it's it's normal and finding healthy for that are to improve not only your quality of life, but probably also your partner's quality of life as well, because you're not placing all of your sexual fulfillment on their shoulders um, when they're clearly not, you know, oriented the same way you are towards sex. And you can have mismatched sexual drive in a relationship and still have a happy and fulfilling relationship if you're openly communicating about that and you understand that about each other and you have other healthy outlets for it. Yeah. Um, So two last questions. How would you advise a couple in this situation Mm -hmm. if, if someone, especially coming from a religious background or is in the religious institution who is being told that lust is an offense to their partner that, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're masturbating, you damn well be imagining having sex with me. Otherwise you're cheating on me. Right. And that's so complicated for me because I'm like, can I point to a Bible verse that proves it's okay to do that? No, mm-hmm. but can I point to the mental health and mm-hmm. like 
compulsory behavior that religious repression creates in a lot of people. Um, yes. So how do we balance these two ideas? Right. If you adopt the view that viewing pornography is inherently adultery in it is going to damage the quality of your relationship and the quality of your mental health. It's just going to. Um, now, I'm not saying that you need to be okay with changing your morals around porn and, you know, you should be okay viewing porn. You should be okay with your, your husband viewing porn and you should all just be okay with it. I'm not necessarily saying that, but if you view it in the same category as adultery or you when you value monogamy, you're just setting yourself for a lot of pain and hurt. And I'm not trying to dismiss anyone's fears or concerns, but it is in many ways too strict a standard um, to view it that way. And I understand they'll, they'll point to the passage in the gospels where Jesus says, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in heart. I know they're going to say that Jesus said that 2000 years ago before the internet existed. So there's a lot of, a lot of factors that have changed since then <laughs> that we need to think about. Um, but more than that, I think that it's it's trying to to place a heaviness to something that doesn't have to be there. Now, if you genuinely decide as a couple and as individuals that you think pornography should be completely off the table, that's okay as a decision. But you have to also understand that falling short of that doesn't necessarily mean adultery or even anything about any one individual partner, it, there's all sorts of factors that can, um, can factor in there. And then there's the masturbation component as well that I would, I would very much strongly say that like that needs to be completely separate from the discussion of, of pornography as well. Because if you have mismatched sexual drive and you say, well, masturbation is inherently wrong, and also our sexual drives are mismatched, that is a recipe for, for just deep abiding frustration and, and kind of problems. Now, having said, I mean, like I, I know of cases of, of men with, I wouldn't call it progressive sexual ethics by any means, but men and, and women in relationships that their solutions to this have been, you know, producing their own private video collection of their own stuff. And like, so, you know, if that works for you, go for it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, and so I don't think there's a one size fit all approach. I think communication is key and learning that a, a man masturbating isn't a comment at all about his, his partner's sexuality. A woman masturbating isn't a comment at all about his, her partner's sexuality. This is part of them being humans and it doesn't have to be, a sign of dissatisfaction or distaste or disgust with the other person or anything. It can just be a sign that we're each individual humans with individual sexual drives and there's individual components of that and partner components of that. Yeah. So the last thing I want to touch on because it feels very important is um, being a sex positive person. I am not out to vilify pornography as a whole. I know a lot of people are making an autonomous free decision to be a part of sex work and to do sex work. Um, I do know people that are really professing to be happy in that profession. Mm -hmm. And I do see it as work, a legitimate profession. Mm -hmm. That said, we cannot deny that there's still a massive stigma around sex workers. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear from you and also, let's address the real components of not everyone is there by their own decision. Right. And even if they are supposedly there doing pornography by their own decision, 
you don't even know what factors led to that being a quote right. decision. And uh, in my Tyra Tang interview, for example, she talked about how if a woman is giving happy endings to just put food on the table, was that consent or not? You did consent to having a certain exchange that was mutually agreed upon, but is that a moral thing to do? So those are all questions, but I really want to hear from you to wrap up the whole conversation, just how you view this notion of um, these murders and what led to a quote, nice Christian boy from a nice Christian Baptist family to believing that eradicating his desire, aka murdering mm -hmm. um, these women, was less egregious than basically staying in a sexual sin. Is that something you agree with? Do you agree with this idea that it wasn't sexual addiction and it wasn't porn to blame, but that it was actually these other components? You know, there, there's so much there. And so, you know, as a clinical psychologist, uh, I, I don't, I haven't, you know, met this guy. I haven't talked to him. I don't know his situation. I don't know if he had a true compulsive sexual behavior disorder, if he had what we would call sex addiction, or if he had just moral incongruence, which is like excessive guilt because you're doing sexual things that violate your morals. Um, if I had to guess, I think, you know, it's, very possible he had both. He felt excessive shame and he had out of control sexual behavior. It's very, it's very possible that it was both of those things or none of them. I don't know. I, again, I, I just, I fundamentally reject the notion that, that any of that has a logical ending point in murder. And the reason I say that, I mean, there's, there's layers to that. Um, one part of it is, you know, we have nationally representative data. We know somewhere between three and seven percent of men and one in three percent of women in the U.S. are concerned that their sexual behaviors, and that includes masturbation, but also partnered sexual behaviors. So just globally, between three and seven percent of men and one in three percent of women in the U.S. are concerned that their those behaviors might be out of control. Now, so that suggests with those numbers that we have millions and millions of men and millions of women in the U.S. that are worried that their sexual behaviors are excessive, compulsive, addictive, out of control. None of them are going out and murdering the people that they think enable them that. So, I mean, that, flatly, that already kind of points out like something's different here. If millions of people live with those feelings every day and only one goes out and murders, you know, predominantly Asian women, it suggests to me that there's a, a separate narrative that needs to be dominating this here. It's not the sex addiction. I mean, he singled out Asian women for a reason. I don't think you can take apart the racial aspects of this. It's clear that he targeted uh, Asian women here. Um, and you can't blame it on sex addiction. Perhaps purity, culture, and excessive guilt over falling short of his sexual morals made things worse. I, I feel very comfortable um, suggesting that that didn't help things. I, I, the, the way that the church approaches sexuality probably left him with more shame, which didn't help. There's still no version of that. I mean, there's a lot, you know, it would be different. And I, I was actually talking recently with, with a colleague about this is like, 
I'm used to sexual shame leading people to feeling suicidal. I, that's something I've seen before and we've talked mm. about. You just and gave me a chill. Mm. Yeah, and it's terrible and it's awful and I'm not trying to minimize it, but I can see that thought process that leads to that. I have fallen so short. I'm so broken. I'm so filthy. I'm so evil. I just need to end it all. That process I can see and it's terrible and, it, and it's wrong. Um, and we need to help those people, but I cannot see any version of reality where I'm out of control sexually. I must go kill these people. Makes sense. And like, I, I can't, not with impurity culture, not without purity culture, not in the sexual addiction framework, not in the compulsive behavior framework. I, I have not been able to wrap my head around how that is a logical endpoint. Okay. So. Thank you for all this information and education. I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah. Do you have any final words for men? men. I, I have such a huge heart for men. I really do. I'm not a man-hating feminist. I want to invite them into this conversation. Right. I really, as I showed in my Monday's video, have so much empathy and, and care and love for what the male population has been through in this shaming mm -hmm. of their sexuality. Right. Well, I think, you know, one thing that I, I often think about is that, you know, healthy masculinity means understanding yourself and your sexuality. And in a way that isn't just, oh, I'm a man, I like sex. It means actually thinking through these things and understanding what you like and what you don't like and what your, I mean, what your preferences are and all of those types of things, but also understanding you know, how to behave in an ethical way. I mean, to my opinion, there's no healthier sign of masculinity than a man who wants to be sexually ethical um, and in a informed way, not in the, you know, abstinence only, pure monogamy, no sex other than with my wife way. I mean, I, I mean, if you arrive there, I guess fine, but like, it, you've actually interrogated what it means to have a healthy sexual ethic and behave that way. And so that means valuing things like consent, but it also means valuing things like pleasure and even pleasure for yourself, but in ways that are ethical for the people that are involved in that process too. So, I mean, really interrogating that and understanding that, I mean, there's nothing unmasculine about having those conversations. And there's also nothing unmasculine about, you know, realizing that how you think about sexuality is different than how you've been taught. But I think men are often afraid to actually interrogate their sexuality because we're conditioned to believe that, well, we're men, we have high sex drives and we should, you know, act on that a lot within this very specific context and shut it down everywhere else, period, the end. And that's not healthy. So. Yeah. And I would just add, that sounds like a very sexy man to me. <laughs> the guy is like ethically motivated and sexual and prioritizes the pleasure and consent and everything about the partner that he's choosing to engage with sexy love it <laughs> um where can everybody find you follow you etc yeah so um the the best place to find me most often is going to be probably on twitter i'm at joshua grubbs phd um i do have a website joshua grubbs phd.com um and then you know you can always google me I, i'm sure lots of fun links will pop up <laughs> all right thank you again right, thank you. we love you all so much god bless